0: welcome to our gem pursuit i'm your host matthew weldon and as usual i'm here with my co-host elise Ketcher.
1: hi everyone
0: it's episode six we're passing by the halfway point of our journey through the ages and jewelry and the decades are flying by where exactly are we elise or should i say when exactly are we
1: we are in the fabulous 50s We're going to teach you about the jewelry from this incredible era, how things were shifting in terms of the people and the places of the time. And of course, we're going to talk about some amazing icons, which really shape the way in which we view ourselves today.
0: Sounds great. 1950s. Let's get started. Total change coming into the 1950s, at least. Following on from the 1940s, obviously dominated by World War II and the subsequent aftermath. Going into the 1950s, things changed quite a bit, didn't they?
1: It's a dramatic change. I mean, we're talking, we've talked a lot about um, this morning, actually, I was talking to Ross about how we kind of bunch you know, a huge period of time into the Victorian period. And then once we hit the 1900s, there's like massive changes that are happening decade per decade. And in the 1950s is no different. We're we're looking at a population that is moving out of a massive world war and the aftermaths of that. We're not only just talking about, The hardships of war and you know everything that comes with that. We're also talking about shifts in the dynamics again because women had to you know take up a lot of the men's jobs while they were away. So you know the milkman was a milkwoman in the in the war years. And yeah, that was
0: a trend of the war, though I suppose, wasn't it? All the the jobs that previously men held. Obviously all the men were fighting in the war and it was the span of it, like globally there was a, a all the men are fighting so the uh, women picked up these jobs. Then 1950s I suppose all the men were back, you know, in their countries working. I suppose there was kind of a an overlap or a collision of roles then, wasn't there?
1: And also, we talk about in the 1940s as well, there was a huge amount of marriages. So, we have, you know, I think it was around two million brides um, just before the men went away to war. The men went away to war without actually having a tried and tested marriage. And then they come back to these very, very independent women who were the head of their households, who 60% of all women at this time were also in the workforce. And they were then expected to get back into their box and become perfect housewives. This became a problem. This became a problem for the government and for the economy because they didn't want um, they didn't want women to feel unwanted, but they needed men back in the workforce doing the jobs that they saw were only fit for men. Um, so there was you know, government slogans that, that went out. There was thank yous that were put out in newspapers, thank you to the wives for your war for your efforts during the war, things like that. And then we see kind of an onburst of these TV shows that kind of depict the perfect household and the perfect. Um, family set up the white picket fence the mowed lawn yeah. the beautiful housewife wearing gorgeous ensembles as her husband comes home with the food prepared and the you know the 1.2 kids or whatever one one or two kids. probably
0: more than that at that stage but the uh the advertisements at that time were reinforced that image they were some pretty i mean if you if you google 1950s advertisements or 1950s sexist advertisements some of them are just looking at them through the lens of modern day they're absolutely outrageous but at the time they they were as you said portraying this idolized family life which was obviously as you said an effort from the government to kind of create this lifestyle because there was just all men coming back and as you said they want to get the women back into the roles in the house as you mentioned, a lot of marriages in World War Two. It was sorry in the forties because obviously people going off to war, and um, so a lot of marriages meant a lot of babies, and yes. uh, the
1: baby boom.
0: <laughs> that created uh, a whole raft of work as well, of course. So I suppose the backdrop to this decade, if we were to just touch on the political, would be really the uh, the start of the Cold War, more or less. So following World War Two, the only countries really left standing in a, in a sense where the usa and of course russia being so vast large chunks of russia had been unaffected by the war as well so um whereas if you take the the west side of russia that of course was you know invaded by the nazis and had it was a battleground but the a lot of the east you know east of the euro mountains was kind of left unaffected so russia and the u.s were the two superpowers in the 1950s and there was like a, a space race and i think russia were the first people to get um, Sputnik. Sputnik up there. Uh, it's the- not
1: only that, though. Um, I love what you say in terms of, you know, we've got these two superpowers. We've got the US, we've got Russia. Obviously, the US is kind of coupled together in with Britain as well, which is considered the Western world and kind of, I guess, the Eastern world. I think it really teaches us that division doesn't work. So we see the division that happens um, in Germany after the war, uh, where kind of Russia takes half of Germany and the West takes the rest of Germany. And we see a wall built in the middle of Berlin. And not only that, we also see Korea, which is another uh, country that a lot of us forget about. Um, Korea is also divided between Russia and, um, and the US, And a war starts in the 1950s where the North tries to take over the South. And that becomes a huge problem at this particular time period for the U.S. The U.S. go in to try and settle things down there because their, you know, alliance is to South Korea and North Korea's alliance is to, um, well, at this time to themselves. Yes. But... They invade South Korea, and so the U.S. go back in to try and stabilize things again. But I just think it's really important um, that we look back to the 1950s and see, you know, the mistakes that were made where we're trying to divide, um, divide countries as the spoil of war and this creates a huge problem. But we also see again, that kind of patriotic symbolism coming through in jewelry as well, because of the war that's happening in the, in these countries or the division that's happening in these countries as well.
0: There was a whole wave of independence throughout the world at that time as well. Countries seeking to become independent following their colonial past. So uh, like to Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, looking for independence from france um a lot of the african countries also trying to break free uh, after world war ii and it kind of spread a bit like the Arab Spring, maybe that was that happened a few years ago where they tried to kind of get rid of their established dictatorships there was a wave through the world of independence as well which is quite interesting
1: also in america we have the civil rights movement that begins in the 1950s as well Um, There's a lot of kind of uh, talks about how it actually began. One of the great kind of things that I look back to was Rosa Parks and her refusal to give up her seat on the bus to uh, a white male. So this, this sparked the civil rights movement of this time and the Freedom Riders and things like that, which of course became, you know, even more, of a movement in the 1960s, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the next um, episode, but really the beginning of this civil rights movement um, happened in the 1950s and continued on into the 60s. So really important to recognize um, the struggles. The origins
0: were were beginning yeah. to show there, and I'm sure they were there before, but everything's kind of was put on hold in the, in the forties really, wasn't it? So of course uh, here in Europe, the, Treaty of Rome, signed in 1957, which formed the European Communities, or the Common Markets, which was you know, basically the, the origin of the European Union. And we can't
1: forget about Lilibet either. Queen Elizabeth being crowned and her coronation in 1953.
0: Mm. Is she your icon today? No,
1: she's not. No,
0: in fact, we'll, just, we'll she, get the icons, but there was a lot to choose from this week.
1: She, she's like, the, the issue that I have with choosing Queen Elizabeth as an icon is that... She is in every single decade from now here on out, so she's a difficult one to kind of pin to an era. Oh, so she
0: might be, she might yet be an
1: icon. Yeah, she might yet be, but but you know you you can't really pin her down to to one decade because she's actually evolved a lot during um, as the crown has shown. But this is where she actually 1953 regal splendor i mean if you can watch the coronation in in on youtube in real life it's incredible, it's incredible. Yeah. when they look across the crowd and you see the sparkle of the tiaras from nobility it's actually quite amazing like it would make you feel like you were in you're not
0: you're in all of this right you know you are in all of it watching us But the whole fashion in the 1950s changed quite a lot as well. The likes of, and this is what I love about the jewellery through the ages, the more closer we get to modern day, the more of it becomes familiar, even though things from the Georgian period still influence us. The likes of Christian Dior, Balenciaga.
1: We're talking about a really cinched waist. So, women in the average waist for women in in the 1950s was 23 inches, and today it's 32 inches. So that kind of gives you an idea of the fashions of the time. It was all about cinching. So, very nice wide kind of silhouette uh, down the bottom. So, an hourglass figure was favoured, and a very very cinched waist. So, um, sorry, but
0: hold on. How is that possible? Like people, women haven't changed like physically well, <laughs> since no, the 1950s.
1: Well, we have, we have, we have changed. But the thing is, is that one of the major things that was used in fashion at the time was a elastic girdle, which is no longer used. You know, we favor today more the kind of yoga pants style. Whereas back then it was, <laughs> it was more of a very cinched waist. With the aid of an elastic girdle that would actually suck your tummy. this was
0: this idea was again mass media was you know was really developed during World War II because of you know propaganda. But now it was used to portray this image uh, in terms of technology in the nineteen fifties. Did you know the most manufactured item of all time was invented in the nineteen fifties? Plastic. Well, say plastic was like a category, but one particular item in the nineteen fifties was the most we've all we've every single one of us has hundreds of them in our house.
1: Hundreds of them. And
0: there's over thirteen sextillion of them made, which is <laughs> one point three to the power of ten to the twenty-two. So that's a lot of them in history.
1: Uh so it's made of plastic, obviously.
0: No, actually it's made of metal.
1: Okay, tell us, Matthew.
0: The it's a transistor. It's called a MOSFET or a MOS transistor, uh, and it is like a basically a metal oxide semiconductor, which is just used in all modern electronics and items and things like that. But I think it's 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 very important because this <laughs> technology has developed a lot in the fifties, and these permeate every single electronic device that we have. They thought they were the birth of modern electronics. For example, it's in your smoothie maker that you have in the morning. It'll be in your phone. It'll be in your computer all sorts of different items. So they really have, the invention of these really was fundamental.
1: Talking about inventions, uh, the pacemaker was also invented in the 1950s and synthetic antibiotics were also made readily available to the masses, which obviously is extremely important for our mortality rates. So that actually obviously has helped us to have the kind of, stabilized lifestyle that we all enjoy now. Um, But before we move on to the next um, part about the jewelry, we also must touch on um, the rock and roll. Um, era that happens during this time. Music is huge and has obviously a massive impact on fashions, the icons of the time, and also celebrity. So we start to see more of a kind of um, an idolized view of musicians during this period. And also, the teenage rebel is born. So we start to see more of the younger generation rebelling against the older generation.
0: And fi- on a final note, and uh, I think it's important to mention that um, the famous footballer Pele was also introduced at the end of this of the 1950s in the World Cup in Sweden in 1958. And I mean, just just to say about the um, who is Pele? Pele. Oh God. Um. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, who is Pele, Elise says. that's. I'll show you. I'll I, Google for you.
1: I've got two bewildered owl-looking faces looking at me right now, but I'm being serious. So, well,
0: Elise looks up Pele. I'd just like to say that, obviously, even during 10 years, there's so much that happens that we try to touch on uh, kind of the key points. But as with every decade and time period, I'm sure we leave out very important things. But it just gives you an idea of the events that are happening and the different trends that were happening through the particular period Uh, and of course the jewelry always reflects this 1950s jewelry we saw last week when we talked about the 1940s jewelry the use of gold uh the use of kind of angular motifs and high jewelry talk to me a little bit at least about what happened in 1950s that made a change
1: So 1950s also becomes the kind of era of home entertainment where you kind of bring people into your home and you become the hostess with the mostess. And the way that you dress during this time as a woman was directly related to your worth. Women were expected to look perfect, hair perfect, you can see this a lot through the nineteen fifties housewife, how they're portrayed on television. With Mad
0: Men, was that in the nineteen fifties?
1: That's nineteen sixties. But oh. it has. They, there are some similarities and crossovers. The housewife is still very much relevant in the nineteen sixties. But in the nineteen fifties, we see um, we see a lot of women actually entertaining guests, and when men come in when people come into their home, they are expected to look a certain way. Now jewelry of this particular time period was also used by men to show their kind of success. So how your wife looked also reflected your success as well. So men were very much into purchasing jewelry for women. Um, The most important things to note is that It was all about bigger is better. The jewelry must be seen. The jewelry is a status symbol. And so we see very, very high settings that perhaps we wouldn't have seen during the 1940s, where it's kind of a little bit more angular and masculine, very yellow gold. We start to see a mixture of golds in the 1950s again. The white metal start to come back into fashion as well.
0: And that angular nature from the 1940s was probably like a legacy of Art Deco design. Yes. But that kind of died out when you get to the 1950s. And that's one of the ways you can really tell the difference between 1940s and 1950s. The angular design, as you say, it kind of fades out to much more feminine and elegant patterns. So things like bows, things like floral motifs, leaf motifs. And exactly as I said, Elise, so you'll find mixed gold, but like big gold. Um, I'm just thinking of one 1950s brooch we have here is an enormous gold bow. Uh, Probably not the size of your hand, but definitely the size of the palm of your hand. Um, And brooches were so in vogue in the 1950s. And I won't get into my idol, but uh, she was known for having brooches as her her favourite piece of jewellery. In terms of colours... On 1950s jewelry, what would we expect to see?
1: Well, when we when we look at some of the um, most important jewelry from this era, most of it is going to be in diamond we see a lot of diamonds being used in kind of spray designs, anything that has a curvature to it, because of course, remember we're kind of reflecting the era. So women's curves were specifically important in fashion at the time. And so the jewelry reflected that as well. We see a lot of beautiful curved flowing lines in jewelry. Also, we start to see a lot of high rise cocktail rings during this period as well. And that can be in any color gemstone, whatever is going to suit the ensemble. The fashion, the colors that were being worn by women were bright and were very feminine blues and purples and pinks and yellows. Uh, were all worn during this time,
0: but that was really the birth of the cocktail ring in yes. the 1950s, yes. which is, uh, I suppose, we look at them today is they they mightn't have necessarily been high car gold, but you know, nine car gold set with amethysts and citrines, but big, really beautiful, color colorful gems. But I think one of the one of the also differences is that like previously. Daywear jewelry tended to be quite discreet, whereas now it was perfectly okay to go around the middle of the day wearing the most big jewelry. Big
1: jewelry, big chunky jewelry during the day, but it would never be gemstone set. So we start to see kind of a revert to the old school back in the Victorian period where. Diamonds weren't worn during the day, but they were worn at night. And gem set jewellery wasn't worn during the day, it was worn at night. So big kind of chunky gold jewellery, gold hoops, studs. The pearl necklace is a huge one that we see during the 1950s. Every housewife is wearing it. But also remembering that this is also the birth of the sex symbol. So we see... A huge divide there as well, where we see the kind of angelic housewife. And then we see the sex symbol, which is what Marilyn Monroe portrayed. Um, we got a flavor
0: of that, though, in the 40s, I think.
1: This Anything to do with women and sex during this time was kind of demonized. But I think Marilyn Monroe was very clever in that she took what people had said about her and how they portrayed her. And she used it to her advantage. So although she's not one of my icons of this era, she definitely was an icon for the 1950s. But when she passed away and they actually looked at her collection of jewelry, she didn't have anything that was actually real so she died with no real jewels which i found really quite upsetting to to learn that you know she had worn some of she'd worn the tiffany yellow diamond like one of the the largest yellow diamonds in the world that still goes on display in the tiffany window in new york city
0: and you'll see it in bradley cooper and lady gaga's uh, exactly performance it, if you look yeah. at it, it looks incredible in that yeah video. and
1: she you know she's been pictured wearing she she made a lot of money for a lot of men and for a lot of films during that time and didn't actually gain anything except for her becoming a, an, an icon. So I didn't choose her for that reason. But I really wanted to kind of, because I wanted to end this, the jewelry era kind of with Marilyn Monroe, because in the 1953 film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, this is kind of a really iconic moment for jewelry. Um, In this period, she comes out in a pink ensemble. I think we all know it. Madonna has redone it. Um, uh, Kelly Osborne has also redone this particular scene where she wears pink gloves, a pink gown and is dripping in diamonds and she sings um, diamonds are a girl's best friend. give us a belt of
0: Adele, Yeah, I'm not going
1: to I'm not going to sing it but I'm going to tell you my favorite words from it. So uh, Marilyn sings men grow cold when girls grow old and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shaped? These rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Tiffany's, Cartier, Blackstar and Frost, Gorham, talk to me, Harry Winston, tell me all about it. And that kind of sums up exactly, for me, what the 1950s were about. These are the main designers of the time. And in the end, diamonds were the girl's best friend.
0: Well, for the 1950s, there was a few tips that I was thinking of, um, but you know, we're talking about jewellery and the different types of jewellery that you get in the 1950s, and you'll get big bold colours, and you also get a lot of matching sets of jewellery in the 1950s. And I, I was thinking, what would be a good tip to have? And I, something that I, I've come across personally in the shop here a few times is we have a set of 1950s coral earrings, clip-on earrings, as were in vogue at that time. Earrings are so big that clip-on was usually the most effective way to actually wear them. And they can have beautiful mechanisms to hold them in place. And some people say that they they hurt. And, uh, you know, as they do. I know because I try them on, our clip-on earrings, because I want to make sure they're comfortable. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> they but, look great on him. Yeah, no, but you know, got to <laughs> test your own product, right? But uh, we have these actually little rubber clips that we can stick on them that do make them a bit more comfortable. But... The thing I would say, uh, so so we had these 1950s earrings, and from a totally separate origin and totally different dealer uh, that we work with, about three years apart, we managed to buy a ring uh, which matched these earrings, right? And... They just want to be together. But it's incredible. I was like, this is the same ring and the same earrings. They're bought totally different places, um, years apart. But the value of the set is more than the value individually. And what a lot of people are tempt- tempted to do is they're tempted... If someone wants to buy, say, the ring off them, you know, sometimes you have a collection of your friends, say, oh, I love that ring, you might think about selling just the ring or just the earrings or just the necklace. Or you want to put them in an auction and the auctioneer might tell you, oh, you know, I'd buy the, we'll put the ring in separately to this or that. Or if you go into a shop and the shop wants to buy a certain piece off you, say no. The value is much better off if you keep them together. You might get a short-term benefit if you want to, because it might be easier to sell a piece separately. But you're far better off keeping them together and waiting for the right buyer. If if that's something feasible, if you want if you want to sell them, and if you're in a position to wait, uh, I would say you're definitely definitely better off keeping them together. Because since we've had our set together here, I've had offers from dealers in the trade far in excess of their value separately. Um, and that is, I suppose, it's not a, a very applicable maybe tip to a lot of people, but it's just something that I've come across which is very specific to the 1950s because people did like sets of jewellery and matching necklaces, or if not matching, sometimes you find coordinating. But those sets, you're better off keeping them together.
1: Yeah, the, the fashions of the time were just all about coordination, as you said. I've... I really do adore a lovely set, and I think there's just something pleasing to see something that has been put together in such a way that is complementary to an outfit. I mean, for a woman, maybe it's more pleasing than it is for men. But uh, I know,
0: no, no, I totally get it. Like to like when you see these sets together, they are very pleasing, especially if they match the the outfit. And yeah,
1: especially if you want to wear it and. It, with an out a specific outfit it just looks incredible um,
0: what i love about the 50s jewelry then is because they are because they are such big pieces you can clearly see they they match their sets yes you now some with the smaller sets you kind of have to look a bit closer and then you'll see the detail and you'll say oh that's a beautifully matched set but you can tell from across a room a large room at that that yeah. the 50s jewelry matches so that'd be my little trade tip, um, tip. I mean there's other there's other things that I thought of but I won't uh I'll let if you go ahead and say your tip then I'll say the other little supplementary tips that I have because I don't want to overlap on your one just in case
1: okay so my tip for the 1950s is that because we have such a pressure to look a certain way and to kind of keep up with the Joneses so to speak we see a huge influx of costume jewelry during the 1950s and it becomes a movement I would say where we start to see what is known as the fabulous fakes during the 1950s so um, if you couldn't afford a yellow gold turbo gas chain you would get a steel one and it would be plated or gilded gold to look like it was yellow gold and these when i when i say fabulous fakes these are fabulous fakes like they're created to look like the real deal we also see um, 1950s cocktail pieces always always check the authenticity of large cocktail rings their gemstones because we like i said it might look like a duck but it maybe doesn't quack like a duck so just make sure that it does if that makes okay. sense and if you No,
0: it is yeah it's very important to check
1: yeah, yeah because we it could be in all gold it could be um it could really look like it's gold or it could lo- really look like it is precious metal but it might have just been really really well made to portray a certain style of this period um, and of course remember it's a time period where you're trying to keep up with everybody so it's supposed to look real
0: and as I and just on that that's just what really it reminds me of at the there's a huge Fabulous fakes, but also fabulous proper costume jewelry of the 50s. Yeah. But they're so commonly reproduced today. There's somewhere nearby uh, here, I know that, and they disclose it fully, but they sell uh, reproduction 1950s jewelry, but it's even signed by the people of the 1950s. So authentic vintage costume, 1950s, very desirable. Uh, But you have to just be careful of the. And I suppose that's a theme of any times there's a value and rarity in something someone will try and copy it
1: and before we move on to our icons i think we need to answer maybe some of the questions on our instagram um we do have jenny wren who's asked a question about who were the main jewelry dealers in dublin during the 1950s and i thought that this was quite interesting because this has a lot to do with Matthew's family history.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Very interesting question. And I suppose there were a few who are still around today and then there was a few who wouldn't be. So uh, in the 50s, there would have been a jewellery dealer called The Wines and they would have been very well known and very serious dealers in the 50s. I believe they're somewhat still involved in the business Um Perhaps not in Ireland, though, actually. But in the 1950s, Ireland, you you would see... uh, When we get stuff in for sale, sometimes you'll still see they have the wines label on it or they have the wines box. There was a place called Morton's, which is where river island is now at the bottom of grafton street on the left uh, although sorry that's not river island anymore is it
1: cath kidson and river island are next to each other but i think it might have been the two stalls together it
0: was an enormous shop and had those really cool pulley systems where they used to pull the cash away and then like a little tube from the till so that was really cool then of course yeah my grandfather would have been trading in the 1950s in dublin In fact, they would have started... His grandfather would have started off before him in about the 1890s. And he was on uh, O'Connell... Just off O'Connell Street or Sackville Street, it would have been called, I think, at that stage. And then he moved into Clarendon Street in 1940. So he was was a a preeminent dealer at that stage as well. And my dad had told me many, many interesting stories about trading uh, at that time. And one time when he drove down Grafton Street... Uh, He collected a set of silver terrines or vegetable dishes or something like that and drove down Grafton Street and turned left into Johnson's Court and forgot the things were still on the roof and they went flying all over the place. And if anyone knows Johnson's (laughs) Court, (laughs) Johnson's Court is actually, um, Johnson's Court is a tiny little laneway, but it actually was a a vehicular access in the 1950s yeah there's a few other ones uh brereton's would have been in the business at that stage as well i believe they would have been pawnbrokers brokers on the north side of the city and yeah then but there's been a wave of new ones in, in ireland since as well but a few a few stalwarts still hanging on from the
1: 1950s super interesting i just i love the fact that we still have you know people who've got living memories of these times
0: hey there maddie here i just want to take a moment to let you know about our gem pursuit newsletter with each new podcast we're going to start sending out some supplementary podcast material just to point you in the direction of any interesting items that we've discussed on the show if this sounds like something you're interested in simply go to our website courtville.ie scroll down to the bottom of the home page and enter your email address and that's it now let's get back to the episode Icons of the 50s, I think out of all of the decades and all of the time periods we've looked at, this for me, at least, was the hardest one to pick an icon from. (laughs) Who did you go for? (gasps) Tell me, me maybe, did you have a short list? Who were your options and who did you go for? And why did you choose them?
1: I had so many. I mean, there was Sophia Loren, who I really adore as a personality, uh, you know her. One of her famous quotes is because she's no, she was an Italian, and she well she's still alive. She's known for her curves, and um, one of her famous quotes was, "I got like this from eating spaghetti. Everything that you see is from spaghetti," and I loved that because like obviously today you know a lot of people are like talking about low carbs and you need to do this and you need to do that a calorie deficit all of this and for her the one of the greatest sex symbols of all time what you see is from spaghetti i thought it was hilarious but she was one and i Marilyn Monroe was one, but I found her story too devastating. Another one that I thought of was the one that I know that you're going to be doing, Um, so I'm not going to mention the name, but that was a huge one because of her jewellery and um, also how much of a fashion icon she was during this period. I kind of rested on a very, very famous lady who continues even today to be a fashion icon to many, um, I chose Audrey Hepburn.
0: Audrey Hepburn, yeah. Incredible 1950s icon. And in fact, you could have picked any of the ones that you listed there. No, but it was
1: hard because there's like icons of the 1950s, but they kind of move into the next decades as well. You know, so some of Audrey's work, very, very well known work, is from the 1960s as well. So I was kind of getting put off that and was trying to go for someone who was just known for the 1950s. But then I kind of liked the fact that. You know, from here on out, we're going to be talking about women who kind of don't expire after their decade. Do you know what I mean? They continue on. So she was still an icon in the 60s. She still was present in the 70s. She was a humanitarian um, worker in the 80s and, and 90s and even before that, actually. She was born in Brussels to a Dutch noblewoman and an Englishman. So she was then known here on out as an an English actress, but really um, she was incredibly talented. I mean, she learned six languages during her lifetime, Dutch and English from her parents. Then she knew um, French, German, Spanish, and Italian. She was brought up in a sheltered and privileged home life in her childhood years, but then... Uh, was um, in occupied Netherlands during the war. So she, she does actually speak out a lot about the injustices that she saw during the wartime. Specifically, she talks about witnessing Jews being taken away at train stations and uh, one of her famous quotes is, I saw a a, a Jewish boy standing on the platform with his parents and I saw him ushered into the train and I was a child watching a child. And, you know, she talks about, you know, the way in which the war was betrayed and how she says the atrocities that happened, what you, you read about them, you think they can't be any worse. And she said, actually witnessing it and being there in real life was worse than what you could ever have read. So she was a real advocate during her lifetime for, you know, standing up for people knowing what happened during World War II. Uh, what I also found really interesting about her is that during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, she held underground concerts in which she collected funds for um, the Dutch resistance. So she was actually active in in trying to fight back against, um, against Nazis. So I thought that was really... Which ab- would have
0: been very risky, I'm sure. Very
1: much so. Mm. And for a, a, a young girl of her age, really, really risky for her to be doing it. But obviously, you know, showing her kind of willpower to kind of succeed in life her first major role in a film was of course the roman holiday before that she had smaller roles and she'd moved to england after the war and she studied ballet and you know all of these amazing kind of artistic outlets for her came to fruition after the war but her major film that kind of carried her into stardom was uh the roman holiday and this is where she is a european princess called princess anne and we start to see um kind of the fashion icon that she becomes we know you know the kind of little pedal pusher um black trousers that she wore with a black turtleneck and um ballerina flats the, this is her kind of iconic look and it has been used over and over and over again um, throughout popular uh, media, throughout the, the rest of the decades. I mean, we still see it today. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere. we still see it today. We know even like certain editorials that are done today. I know Kim Kardashian has portrayed her in editorials before and she just... Her classic image kind of never dies. But I want to speak a little bit about the jewellery that she wears in her films. In real life, she was more of a a classic woman. She wore a lot of classic designs. We know the trench coat, of course, from uh, Breakfast and Tiffany's, although that was in 1961. You know, when she plays Holly lightly. we see her wearing so many different jewels including a small tiara on her head the necklace that she wears during this is a again a Tiffany's necklace called the ribbon rosette and it consists of 128.54 carats um, of yellow diamonds quite an Pretty amazing substantial yeah <laughs> quite an amazing piece of jewelry uh, we also see her in funny face in 1957 she wears a really amazing headpiece in this. I think it's by Paul duval uh, If you see the picture of her, she is wearing kind of a, a bandeau dress with high gloves that meet the the sides. And then it almost looks like Kim Kardashian's original headpiece that she wore to a wedding that was televised on TV. It's like a um that goes across the head, across the forehead and it has like dropped Uh, pear-shaped diamonds coming down from it uh pear-shaped diamonds was one of her favorites we see her wear pear-shaped diamonds quite a lot in movies and in her personal life as well and then My Fair Lady I don't know if you've ever seen that particular film Matthew but She plays Eliza Doolittle and I actually played a street child in a stage production of My Fair Lady when I was a child. But um, in that she wears a trio. It's a incredible kind of swag, open work diamond necklace that, you know, covers her whole kind of decolletage area and it has earrings as well that matches it and a tiara and this is by show may incredible jewelry suite
0: sounds amazing
1: and then lastly from her films um we have her obviously in the roman holiday where she's depicted as princess anne and she's where you know wearing this amazing floret um tiara hair drop shaped diamond earrings and again a diamond necklace that has swags coming down from it and a central drop but in her personal life Audrey Hepburn was married twice and her greatest love of her life was at the end of her life. Her first marriage produced a child um, and an iconic wedding dress and an iconic wedding set. She had probably the very first stacking rings that we know of. A diamond set uh, baguette eternity band, which was used as her engagement ring. And then she had a white gold faceted wedding band and a rose gold faceted wedding band. And that was her, um, her set. So it's quite an iconic set kind of shows you the kind of woman that she was. She actually never stacked them all together at the same time, but she wore each of them individually as it suited her. Uh, There's so much that I could talk about with Audrey, but I want to kind of keep it as short as possible um, and maybe turn it over to Matthew and see who his icon is. I know that they perhaps would have been in the same circles.
0: Well, my icon, as you said, at least, mixed in very similar circles. And the one thing that struck with me there, just that you said the use of baguette in baguette diamonds in her pieces were were pretty interesting. Because when you think I think of baguettes, I think, in the 1920s. But really, the mixture of, like, marquise and baguettes and round stones, that's a very 50s thing as well. And... You see a lot of the pieces mix those stones to, to great effect. And mixed metals
1: as well. I mm. think it's probably the first time that we start to see really defined mixed metals instead of it kind of being hidden, like the platinum being on top and then yellow gold around. It actually shows mixed but designs. that's great. Look, yeah.
0: mixed metals. And we, we we have a lot of people lately who are getting platinum engagement rings, say, in a yellow gold band, and they look beautiful together. But to answer your question, my icon is one and only grace kelly and the reason i picked her for well, a couple of reasons she kind of emphasized the hollywood star who married european royalty that was kind of like a trend but also that wedding dress though yeah well, yeah well wedding dress or something else but also her collection of jewelry i think stood out probably above most of them uh, marrying one of the wealthiest men in the world and who had it, but not even, helps. not even just money, but access <laughs> to uh, their jewellery collection of the royal family in Monaco.
1: My and gosh,
0: I'd love it. Also, the French jewellery houses were so eager to do work for them. In fact, on, on hearing of the engagement, Van Cleef and Arpels wrote to them and offered their services to them. So and when I say them, I, I, I'm talking about uh, Grace Kelly married the Prince of Monaco. But prior to that, she was born in 1929 in the USA, and she was kind of into acting from a very young age. Her parents weren't too keen of a, uh, about it. Uh, her father said it was a slim cut above a streetwalker, which I thought was an interesting way of putting it. Um, <laughs> she only actually worked for six years as an actress before she headed a, a delegation to the Cannes Film Festival in April, April 1955, which is where she actually met the Prince of Monaco, and after kind of a year-long courtship, they got married. That's when she changed her jobs essentially from actress into Princess of Monaco. But what I really want to talk about is her jewelry. She had some iconic pieces, and when you were mentioning baguette diamonds, this is where where it struck a chord with me is that she was lifelong fans of Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels, which were the two French jewelry houses well two of the most famous french jewelry houses she had two engagement rings not just the one i
1: thought this is a very funny story though because um he originally gifts her or gives her a ruby kind of like eternity ring
0: ruby and ruby and diamond eternity ring which was made by cartier and represented the colors of Monaco she's very romantic so he was
1: yeah 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 but (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah.
0: romance (laughs) so
1: (laughs) I think I think this is really funny though because he it kind of shows you again the the keeping up with the Joneses I suppose because he then realizes that you know some other celebrities have bigger engagement rings than his wife who is now royalty and he quickly rectifies his mistake
0: exactly as i said he kind of realized that while it was a very romantic and thoughtful gesture so monaco flag is red and white and rubies and diamonds red and white she didn't grace kelly herself wasn't enamored with the ring um (laughs) i guess i don't know if she felt let down buy it but she just didn't love it right it was obviously Cartier made incredible quality so he arrived one day with the 10.48 carat emerald cut with baguette shoulders which was made famous in the film High Society which was her final film because when she was married she stopped don't forget so this is when she was engaged so if you see the film High Society you can see her wearing this ring and this is such a style that is really persevered and held through from 1950 to now but get shoulders with an emerald cut center I that mean, is it, called the grace kelly engagement ring yeah
1: if i had a hundred euros for every time somebody has asked me for that particular style i would be a very very rich woman but um <laughs> the, the, the the problem is is that with an engagement ring an engagement ring has to suit you and you know audrey hepburn yes. her little uh, Eternity ring suited her. But Grace Kelly, a uh, little Eternity band is not going to suit her. She needs, you know, she needed the and 10 carat. And,
0: and she got it. <laughs> she got it. <laughs> and so.
1: um, I think I'd be more of a tang, 10 carat girl myself.
0: Yeah, Grace. Okay, well, when <laughs> you get engaged, let me know, you know. <laughs> there are some other interesting pieces in Grace Kelly's collection. So she was, as I mentioned, huge fan of Cartier. Um, Who and huge fan of well good, good point but I mean there was there's she a was fan of Cartier and then there's a fan who can afford a Cartier. who played the played <laughs> on the pitch right so <laughs> so she had uh she had a lot of famous tiaras which some of them are believed to be Cartier some were to believe to be Van Cleef or Appels there's one famous one which nobody knows the attribution of it uh, that was gifted to her by the Prince Rainier but nobody knows who made it which is quite interesting she had another one called the Bon, the Bond de Mer tiara, which is set with there's an incredible picture. If you go onto Google and Google ruby and diamond tiara, Grace Kelly, uh, you'll see this beautiful tiara. It's got three ruby and diamond elements that can be t- detached to form brooches and pendants. So it's convertible tiara. And I that one, I think, is, is really quite special. She was one of the first people to wear the Alhambra necklace of Van Cleef and Arpels that's the one that kind of looks like a clover she had a really long one with quite a large piece to it can't read me on right now loaded brooches oh loved loved brooches yeah she loved brooches
1: (laughs) yes I think with especially with the six years that she was in work in Hollywood we do see her adorned in brooches um it's one of the things that definitely uh we associate with Grace Kelly
0: Yes. and well w- and one thing that people don't know though actually quite a lot is that in her film To Catch a Thief there she worked with Cary Grant she wore a very famous diamond necklace in that one but that actually was not a real diamond necklace. Fabulous
1: fakes that's what the 50s fakes. were about.
0: The last thing in terms of being an icon so and again what I love about this jewelry through the ages is the closer you get to modern day you can see more of the trends sticking so In her film rear window, she wore a charm bracelet, which is still why charm bracelets these days are quite popular.
1: And this is one of our questions as well, which came from Sarah Gashler. And she asked, what was considered a good luck charm in the 1950s? And I'm glad that Matthew brought it up because it was, of course, the charm bracelet. (music) again for our trivial pursuit i can just say that um ross is favoring matthew
0: ah uh, yes that's it <laughs> total deflection <laughs> tactics i prefer just to deal with the questions as they are released and just you know do our best you know it's, it's not a it's not a competition there's no shame in second place really she's gesturing something with her hands there anyway let's just get a quick um let's just get a quick status update from ross
1: oh we know you're winning matthew you don't have to like get an additional well,
0: i actually can't remember so you're up, so by, up two. by two okay it's yeah, so up by two so i'll tell you what i will go first today i'm oh, sorry i'll read the question for elise if that's okay with you and then we can see if you can claw that back a little bit um so <laughs> so first question for AK elise catcher name the american star who refined the 1950s rock and roll sound with hits such as Roll Over Beethoven, Johnny Be Good, and rock and roll music. Rock and roll music. Any ideas? No. No? It was Chuck Berry.
1: Nah, don't know him. Oh, you,
0: know, you know him now. So, question two Which Hollywood icon starred as Stanley Kowalski in the 1951 film? <laughs> <laughs> adaption of tennessee williams play of, a, of tennessee williams play a streetcar
1: <laughs> spit it out will you oh my gosh which <laughs> are you trying to stutter it so that i don't know what you're saying
0: <laughs> which hollywood icon starred as stanley kowalski in the 1951 film adaption of tennessee williams play a streetcar named desire
1: Oh my gosh, Ross! Like, what on earth? Is it a man or a woman? An actor, an actress?
0: Um, it's a, it's a gentleman. Oh, you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. that's me to kill a man. I don't know. Come on. I actually shouldn't give Elise any hints because she's probably going to come back and Al beat Pacino. me. Al <laughs> Pacino. No, Marilyn Brando. Not a bad guest though. Uh, okay, question three: Which doctor wrote the nineteen fifties books? Horton hears a who? Doctor Seuss. And if I ran the circus, Doctor Seuss. Well done. Yep, one out, <laughs> one question right. I actually wouldn't have got any of them. I don't think to be honest. But anyway, go ahead.
1: Well, you'll get these because they have been <laughs> watered down. Let me just tell you now. <laughs> a question please, one please. for your for your two. To, to keep your two yeah. question lead.
0: I I have only one question lead at the moment, so I'm looking forward to the challenge. <laughs> okay.
1: All right, let's go. Okay. Question one. Name the 1950s rock and roll pioneer famous for his thick, dark horn rimmed glasses.
0: Elvis Presley. Who
1: died in a plane crash in oh, 1959, no. just aged 22 years old.
0: Oh, um, Frank's no,
1: <laughs> okay, time. I don't know. I don't know. Buddy Holly.
0: Ah, God.
1: Question okay. two. Which Hollywood icon won a golden globe for best actress in her work in Some Like It Hot in
0: 1959? Some Like It Hot. She probably she wasn't one of our icons. Marlon Monroe, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Yes. That's so easy. So easy. Yeah, because your mood is <laughs> so easy. Some like it hot. Hello. It's like one of the biggest films that she did. Golden Globe Award. Uh, Chuck Berry. Um, Sorry.
0: I just like Ross is independent in this. Let's just stick away from Ross. He's Can not
1: independent. T- Question three. Published in 1950, what is the first and best known book of C.S. Lewis's children fantasies series, The Chronicles of Narnia, called?
0: The line, the Witch and the Wardrobe.
1: No. Who
0: <laughs> is it? all right
1: oh Oh, yeah because it was that i'm writing the questions next week
0: that's it for today's episode as always we really want to hear from you so do send us any questions or comments or feedback to our instagram at matthew.weldons Also, don't forget to go to corfield.ie and to sign up for our newsletter to get some extra jewellery information on extra podcast material sent to your inbox every Monday morning. Uh, And for now, I just want to say thank you to Elise.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: And thanks to Ross, our producer and podcast guru here. And most of all, I want to say thank you to all of you for listening. Talk to you the next time.